You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Good morning, church family. I hope that you had an amazing holiday Thanksgiving break. Uh, How many of you traveled in the room, maybe even if it's just 30 minutes up the road? All right, a decent number of us. Uh, Well, I'm glad you made it back safe. I know we still have a lot traveling this morning. Uh, My wife and I got to drive. We drove to Atlanta on Wednesday. We drove over to Lake Oconee uh, area on Thursday and then came home Friday. And so I I understand the the travels, the the driving. Have you ever wondered while you're on one of those like long trips, why do they even put on your speedometer 160? I mean, why does it exist? Right? I can't go that fast. Right? There's just no chance. First off, my my car probably has a governor on it. Don't ask me how I know that. But a governor means that you can't go past a certain speed, right? A lot of times it's set around 95, maybe 100. Again, these are just things I Googled. I don't know from firsthand experience. So your car won't even let you go that fast. But even if it was capable of going the 140, 150, 160 that your speedometer says on it, what do we have? We have speed limits here in our great United States of America. And so it's illegal to go over a certain speed. And if you don't know that, you will soon find out by our Georgia State Patrol or some other great state's patrol. So what's the purpose of even having a car that tells us we can go this fast? What's the purpose of speed limits? What's what's the purpose of governors? Well, the simple answer is this. We are attempting to limit the amount of damage that we can do to ourselves. Right? That's why speed limits exist. That's why you have governors. I was looking to go purchase, I should say, my father was looking to go purchase a Christmas gift for my son. We were looking at four-wheelers and all that. He's not in here, so I can talk talk about this. I don't think he's getting one anyway. But anywho, they put governors on these things. You can can governor a four-wheeler now so low that it gets to a walking pace. Or you can speed it all the way up to go 25, 30 miles an hour. And so that really, you know calms the parent or the grandparent who's getting the kid on the four-wheeler. You can put all these things that you can limit the amount of damage that they can do to themselves or others. Well, let me ask you this. In that same vein of talking about the ability to limit the amount of damage that we can do to ourselves, what if God has given us those same type of guardrails to follow as His church? so that we can be protected. Like, what, what if God put things in place so that His church, His people, could be protected? Have you ever thought about the idea of His commandments as guardrails to limit the amount of abuse and overuse and dysfunction that you allow in your life? Have you ever thought about God's commandments in that fashion? This morning, as we're walking through our continual study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to be there in just a second. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, we've got a guy in the back who'd love to give you a Bible if you don't have a copy of the, the Word this morning. We'd love for you to turn there with us. But what Paul is going to be doing here in just a minute is he's going to be reminding the people of Thessalonica. He's going to be reminding me and you that God has put together these guardrails so that you and I won't hurt ourselves and others. That we will limit the amount of abuse and damage that we can 
cause to each other. God has, another way of saying it is God has set His children apart, and we are to take advantage of these guardrails that He has given us. And so as we enter into this season of Christmas and Advent, as we welcome and celebrate the birth of our Savior, and we enter a time of peace and joy and happiness, I thought it would be fitting to kind of look at this text and say, you know, in what ways has God given us some places to kind of slow down and go, here is how we enjoy the good life that God has attempted to give you and I. So, if you'll stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to walk through the first 11 verses. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and, and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and helmet for the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You may be seated. So, what I want to do is I want to just walk through these verses quickly, as quick as possible, as I should say, and, and get to kind of the, the, the thesis argument in this paragraph from Paul. And so he begins and he starts talking about, remember where this text is coming from. Last week we spoke about the end times, and so he begins this paragraph. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so if you remember last week in the text that Paul presented right before this in his letter, and his argument, he's, he's kind of encouraging the people to remember that the Messiah will come again. That Jesus will return and He will bring His children with Him. And it will be a glorious moment. It will be a moment where we can look towards and, and be excited for. This isn't something that when loved ones who are in Christ pass away, we have to wonder, okay, what happens when they die? No, we have a firm foundation in Jesus and so Paul is just reminding us of that. And in this text, he's saying, hey, I didn't even really need to give you a whole lot about that because you are expectant. I, I don't know about you, but there's parts of me when I was going through that text last week, I'm going, can I have a little more, God? Like, can I have a little more detail? I, I'd love to know exactly when you're going to come back, exactly what's going to be going on. Like, how do I know when? And Paul in this text is saying, church, I gave you enough. Like, God, through me, gave us enough, is what Paul is saying. And what I love about this is he, he talks about is how they are fully aware 
that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. If you listen to the podcast that we released last week talking about all of the different, um, I guess, nuances of the end times, the premillennial, postmillennial, all-millennial view, this right here is a support of a premillennial view. Because what other view could be expectant of God's return at any time? And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go listen to our podcast. There's a little plug right there. Shameless as it is. But this is Paul kind of reminding the church. Jesus will come. And you know that, so continue to be ready. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. If you've ever been in a situation where a, a woman is giving birth, oftentimes those labor pains hit. My wife was induced for both of ours, and man, that thing hit. And I, I was watching a basketball game. I don't know anything about those pains. But, you know, she tells me they were bad. And so uh, this is one of those situations like you can be going through and all of a sudden it happens. And he goes, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul is going through this entire kind of picture, this imagery right here in front of us to tell us to practice using the guardrails that God has put in our life. So let's talk about some of these guardrails. These are things to keep us awake and attentive and keep our eyes fixated on the Lord. In Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he begins to teach, and what happens? Droves of people come around. I mean, uh, what I love about Jesus' ministry, I heard a pastor say recently, is Jesus was an excellent teacher, but Jesus didn't come to just teach. And this is a model for us as pastors and us as Christians and us as church leaders and small group leaders and Sunday school leaders that we didn't just come to educate. We came to then walk out that education, right? He didn't just come and stand on a, a hillside and say, hey, give me a mega church so I can have a platform to preach. Jesus stepped down from that platform most of the time. More often than not, He did what? He served. And then He used that as an opportunity to teach. But in this moment, Jesus is on this side of the hill, kind of mountainside. And He begins to teach a small select few, but His teaching is so good that people start coming around. And it's more you know, kind of pointing towards His service was so good. Like, the name of Jesus had started to go around, and so people were like, hey, this dude right here is doing something crazy. He's not just talking about miracles and amazing things of God. He's actually walking in it. And so a lot of people start coming around Jesus and that, to hear His sermon, and right here He drops a hammer in Matthew 5. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, imagine being in this place where you're hearing this rabbi, as oftentimes people would call him. And you've heard he's done great things. You Maybe even you've seen some of them with your own eyes. And then he begins to teach and he says things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy, blessed are those who mourn. 
for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. And he goes on to teach that if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Sermon of the year right here, right? You're, you're sitting there going, what is this dude talking about? This is kind of topsy-turvy. This doesn't make sense. These would have been extremely strange things to them as strange as they are to us. And for the next two chapters we see in Matthew, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of heaven is almost nothing like the kingdom that we see in this world. And he kind of unpacks that the culture that God has established in His people is unlike the culture of the world. So God in His great wisdom has installed guardrails. Think of guardrails of, as ways of doing life to limit the damage that we can do to ourselves. And in this message that Jesus was giving, He was putting on display some of these guardrails and how these guardrails kind of guide you and I. But these guardrails have been around for a long time. He goes on to say in that later sermon, Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he gives us a lot of things that would seem obscure teachings. Like, hey, you're going to be good when others are making fun of you and reviling you. You're going to be good when you're uh, in, in mourning. You're going to be good when your life seems topsy-turvy to the world. And then he goes on to say, hey, just FYI, since you probably know about the law, you know about the Old Testament, you're a good Jew, is, is really the audience that he has around him. Do not think that I have come to get rid of all of the laws and the prophets that you've known. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all has accomplished. So when we look at this text today, what we understand Jesus to mean is that He has come to fulfill the law by making atonement for the sins of humanity. So when Jesus reads this, you and I as Christians today kind of look at this and go, okay, He's talking about the law. He's talking about the sacrificial system and the atonement. So what, what that means is we were sinners and there had to be a way for us to be reunited with the Father. And so God sets up this atonement system so that once a year we could go shed the blood of a spotless lamb so that our sins could be atoned for. They could be paid for. They could be covered. And what Jesus is saying is He didn't come to get rid of that system. He came to be the system. Like His blood pays for all of it. So what does this mean? Does this mean that the law no longer exists to you and to me? Well, I think in some ways, this is where it gets confusing to the world around us. This is where the world around us will begin to look at Christians and they'll take verses out of context and what they will say is that, oh, well, you know, Christianity supports slavery or the mistreatment of people or, or all, a whole slew of things. Because they don't understand what it means for the law to have been fulfilled. He didn't come to abolish it, but He comes to fulfill it. See, the law was given to us 
to reveal our need for the Messiah, for Jesus. Because you and I could never fulfill the law. So this is, I know it kind of seems like, where's he going with the guardrails thing, but you've got to understand this. The law was given to you to point you back to your brokenness. Because a lot of times we'll go to the law, like, oh, if I just do these things, my life will be good. And this, this is where Jesus comes in and says, yeah, this is where the Jews oftentimes would have missed it. Because they would have lived their life however they wanted to, and then the Day of Atonement comes, and they, they would go, ah, let's atone for our sins. Or this other ritual would come, or this other thing would come, and they would just do these things just to kind of check off the list that they're right. When really God comes and says, or Jesus comes, I should say, and He says, hey, no, 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 no. That whole thing, it was really just to point you to show you that you need me. Because you can't do it. And if you want to dive into the deeper uh, nuances of what that looks like, I would encourage you to go to Romans chapter 7 or Galatians chapter 3. We're not going to do that this morning. But this is just a basic understanding that when we look at the law, the law is the standard. It's uh, an exact definition of standard would be an idea or thing used as a measure or norm or model in a comparative evaluation. So the law was given to show you and me that the standard is holiness. Right? So it's not this thing to say, hey, you can actually attain this. It's to show you that the standard is perfection. And you can't get there on your own. And so Jesus comes in right in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of this place where we're kind of functioning in the law, trying to understand what it means and point us back. And he says, I will fulfill it in my work on this earth and on the cross. And then I will defeat death and come back. And you know how the law works then? You put your faith in me. That is what Jesus comes to do. Humans were made perfectly, and then we fell. We would have completed the law with ease before sin. Like We wouldn't even have had to have had it, because we would have just functioned in the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God at all times. But we fell, and so God then gives us the law to reveal to us this unreachable task of holiness, to point us back to His Son. And these, this, this right here is not necessarily the guardrails. We've kind of jumped over those, right? Like we've broken that law. And we can't achieve them. Only Christ could do that. So when we look at the sacrificial system, Jesus comes and he completes it. And this is important to understand what Paul is talking about. And the Thessalonians would have grasped this to get to his final point. We can't do the law. Jesus does it. So you might be sitting there thinking, okay, the law, I can't. I can't make this sacrificial system work in order to have me reconvene with God. What about the Ten Commandments? Like, when you go through Scripture and you see the law oftentimes, what you might see at times is the law and they're referring to the sacrificial system. And other times, the writer might be referring to these Ten Commandments. So when Jesus says He came to fulfill the law, is He talking about the sacrificial system? Or is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Well, in some sense, he's talking about both. But primarily, I would say he's talking about the sacrificial system because here's what the Ten Commandments are. They are guardrails. They are these things given to you and I 
to show and to learn that we can function as a community in God. Every single commandment was given so that you and I would be guided back to wholeness, or the the Hebrew term shalom, peace, in following those commandments. It's the point of Paul in this letter for Christ followers to worship through our life, maintaining the guardrails that God has given us. In essence, abiding by the Ten Commandments. Now this is going to have some, some threads and some weaves that I hope that you can gra- grab here in just a second. So, we were given the law, we broke it, it or, we were given perfection, we broke that, God gave us the law to point us back to a Messiah, but then there's also these things called the law, called the Ten Commandments, and how are they different? Well, the law is, what, is how we are atoned for. The Ten Commandments are how we are to function. And oftentimes, if you'll look at those, the first four are how we function with God, and the latter six are how we function with each other. So let's quickly, I'm I'm just going to list the Ten Commandments really quickly. You shall have no other gods before me. Key. You shall shall not make yourself a carved image, or you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not covet, excuse me, so when we read these Ten Commandments, these are things that we, we go, okay, this is how we can function in life. If we just keep these ten. And very quickly, we could turn this in a, into a list of things that move from relationship to religion. That move from performing for rather than performance from. Do you see this? It's a list of things. You and I, would, we'd have a piece of paper and we'd go, okay, I didn't make any carved images today. Right? I didn't murder. I didn't perform adultery. I didn't do any of these things. And we would turn it into a list, but we would forget how these guardrails are going to work. So let's go back to our kind of original question. How do we live our best lives? And how can we stay between these guardrails that God has given us? If the Ten Commandments are the kind of the guardrails, not necessarily in a legalistic fashion, but in a way in which God is pointing us back to, hey, if you will follow and keep these ten things, then the perfected law by Jesus will work in your life. How do, how do we do this? Go back to the text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet for the hope of salvation. So the first thing we see here is Paul says, we belong. We belong. Okay, so those who can keep the guardrails, they belong. 1 Corinthians 6, latter part of 19, beginning of 20 says, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. To belong is to recognize that you have been purchased by Jesus. Christ's followers are chosen, adopted, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And that is where everything in our life begins. From that acknowledgement. 
from that place of going, okay, if I am to follow the Lord my God with all of my heart, and I'm to love my neighbor, as it says in the Shema, as Jesus repeats, how am I to do this? Well, it begins with an acknowledgement that you were broken and Jesus came so that you could be healed, restored, and redeemed. And when you put your faith in him, you belong to him. You can't do it. You cannot keep the ten. And that is why it's so gorgeous that he begins by saying, love God. Because even if you try to get the latter six and you just try to be a great human, humanitarian and a great human, he's going, you'll never do those six well if you don't keep my four. And you alone have proven you can't keep the first four. But Jesus can for you and through you. So, the first step, Paul is saying, hey, if you want to be ready, if you want to be a people who can stay between the guardrails and, and move forward in this life and have the life that God has intended for you to have, the first thing you need to know is that you belong to Jesus. So come back home. If you're the prodigal child and you've gone astray, come home to Jesus. The second thing Paul says is to put on some things. He says to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Think about what a breastplate does. It protects the most vital organs. And what does Paul compare these to? Our faith and our love. He is actually echoing a statement that he makes earlier in the text. In verses 2 and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love. Our faith is what binds our religious beliefs. Matter of fact, Scripture says that the faith that we have is a gift to us. It is what allows us and fuels us to then act in love. So faith and love are some of our two most powerful weapons against the darkness, as Paul would say here. And what it will require is from you as a Christ follower who knows that you've been bought with a price, that you are God's belonger, like you are His, His prized possession, is for you to wake in the morning and begin to put those things on. That means for you to wake in the morning and own who you are in Christ. You don't own that failure at work. You don't own that failed relationship. You don't own the dysfunction that you find yourself in at times. You own that you are a son or daughter of a living king. And no matter how broken you feel, he has come to make you whole. And, and I don't know where you find yourself this holiday season, but for me, that's important. Because I, I can find myself in a place of busyness and hurry, and in those moments, I don't always present myself as the way that Christ would have me present. So I might go home and I go, you know, I, I said this today, I did that today, I wasn't as loving or as kind. I just missed the mark. And Jesus, through Paul's writing, is saying, God's covered you. So own that. But continue to put on the breastplate and the helmet. Every day be prepared to fight. Spend time connecting with God. 
Our, our, our third thing and our mission is to invest in His kingdom. This is part of the reason why we, add, we added this, because love God and love people in, in today's time can become this abstract, just, oh, you just love God, love people, whoever your God is. And no, no, no. Invest in His kingdom makes it very clear that there takes a, a discipline, a sacrifice on our behalf as Christ followers to get in His Word, to meditate. And, and sometimes, coming after Thanksgiving, right, to fast, like to, to go through those spiritual disciplines and say, Lord, I'm going to consecrate my body, my mind, my heart, my time to you. This is what it means to put on the breastplate of faith and love, to prepare your heart and your body to walk out the doors of your home every morning or to get on that Zoom call or whatever it is and embrace and experience those in the world. And do it in the love of Christ. Paul didn't stop at the breastplate. He goes on to the third. He says to put on the helmet. Now when a soldier suited up for battle, this would have been the last thing that they would have been put on. And in some ways, it's the most vital thing. Because one just small nick in the head, and it's over. Teaching my son how to ride a bike and how to ride scooters. And he's like, I don't want to wear my helmet. I'm like, Son, I don't want you to die. Like, well, I'm not going to die. Who says that? Like, who, I'm going to go get on this so I can go die. It's not a normal thing, right? Like, we, we don't plan on falling off of our bicycle or of our scooter. Or my wife has a funny story about a concussion and rollerblades. You should ask her about it later. Right? She was wearing a helmet, thank the Lord. Because if she wasn't, she wouldn't be with me now. She would be with the Lord. Because she can't rollerblade at all. And so what God gives us through Paul in this moment is, hey, put on the helmet of salvation. Because when we have security in Christ, we can do all things through Him. Jesus, talking to another crowd, says, don't fear those who can kill the flesh. He says, don't kill those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Jesus says, I have got your soul. In Romans chapter 8, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We don't just get by in tough times. We are more than conquerors through Him, Jesus, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, that's everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our helmet of salvation, our security in Christ, is what allows us and fuels us to walk in faith, in love. It's the thing that we need to make sure we've got on. We need to make sure that we've given our life to the Lord. And then we function by putting on the breastplate and every day walking in that. So, how do we live out our faith in Jesus? He goes on, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given that. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up 
one another just as you are doing. If you've read this letter and, and kept up with us, you'll notice how often Paul talks about encouragement. I mean, he hits it all the time. Hey, when Jesus comes back, that's encouraging. Hey, I'm encouraged by the way that you communicate with each other. I'm encouraged by the way you love each other. I'm encouraged by the way you've had friendly relationships with people those around the church because that love has then gone out to all of the world around you. I'm encouraged by that. I'm encur- it's like every other word. Paul's saying, you guys are just so encouraging. And Paul reiterates to us that God has entrusted us with a way to stay within these guardrails and to encourage one another. But the key part that we need to remember in all of this is that when we belong, it doesn't stop there. So what we are guilty of as times and Christians, as I wrap up, is we are guilty in owning this truth. Jesus died for me. And that's it. And it kind of stops there. I mean, he's definitely a, a note in, in our hearts. We, we say some prayers here and there. We'll take actions at times. But what Paul is trying to get you and I to do is to reflect and to say, you know what? On a daily basis, maybe hourly, maybe moment by moment, I'm going to put on the breastplate of faith and love, and I'm going to wear the helmet of salvation. To follow Jesus isn't a one-time thing that you did on an aisle out of church. It's an active thing happening. And so Paul is saying, if you want to limit the amount of damage that you can do to yourself and others, follow the guardrails. Give your life to Jesus because you belong to Him. And once you belong to Him, function in what it means to follow Jesus. The holidays can bring about difficulty. There's lost loved ones. There's estranged family members. Relationships gone bad. There's loneliness, depression, and and more. Paul says to each of us, remember who Jesus is and remember who you are. And then go talk about it to the church. Encourage one another. Don't let us live on islands. If you know someone that's hurting in this season, lift them up, encourage them. Put on your breastplate of faith and love and go be a friend in Jesus to them. Because Jesus was a friend to us.